Welcome back to BACOA's Redefining Aging podcast. I'm your host, Matt Downing. Today I'm interviewing Barbara Carnes, award-winning nurse, end-of-life educator, and best-selling author. For more information on BACOA's memory programs, caregiver support groups, and end-of-life support groups, you can visit our website at www.bacoa.org. Here's my interview with Barbara. So thanks for joining me, Barbara. I'm going to read a quick bio of your many accomplishments, just so our listeners have a good idea. Um, Barbara Carnes is a registered nurse and internationally respected speaker, educator, author, and thought leader on matters of end of life. She is a renowned authority on the dying process and a leading educator for families, healthcare professionals, and the community at large. Among Barbara's many award-winning DVDs and books about death and dying are The Final Act of Living, Reflections of a Longtime Hospice Nurse, and Gone from My Sight, The Dying Experience, which has sold over 35 million copies worldwide. So thank you for joining me, Barbara. How are you? I am good. I'm looking forward to this. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, yeah, we're very excited to hear from you. I think I just wanted to kind of start towards the beginning. Just tell me about why you became a hospice nurse and what inspired you to write books about end-of-life care. Well, I graduated from nursing school. Now, this was a long time ago, 1962. And I thought, oh my gosh, I've made a huge mistake. I should have never been a nurse, should have been a social worker, but I never worked in the medical arena, not in a hospital, doctor's office, never worked. It was in the 70s that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, doctor, came forward and said, Americans aren't taking care of their dying. They're in a hospital at the end of the hall. And Dame Cicely Saunders in England, at the same time, created the hospice philosophy, which was we're going to treat people who are dying differently than we're going to treat people who are going to get well. Those two timed perfectly for where I was in my life. And I thought, wow, this is something I can do. This is something I'm interested in. And so I took my nursing, did a refresher course, and got involved with the local hospice. And kind of the rest is history. It kind of sounds like fate. Perfect timing. And from there, when did you start writing books? In 19... Let's see, I started working in hospice in 1981. And I wrote my first booklet in 1986, I believe. And that was Gone From My Sight. Gone From My Sight came about. One night I was on call and I was in the living room with a family. Mom was in the bedroom. She wasn't dying at that moment, but she was probably weeks from death. And I'm sitting with the family and I'm explaining to them what lies ahead for mom and what lies ahead for them. And one of the daughters was taking notes. And I thought, oh my goodness, she shouldn't have to be taking notes. Right. So that weekend, and this is before computers, I sat with the famous yellow legal pad and wrote what I wanted families to know about approaching death. 
I wrote it very simply, fifth grade level, no medical terminology. And I wanted it to be gentle because I was giving some really heart-wrenching information to families. Yeah. So I wanted them to find comfort as well as knowledge. And that's how Gone From My Sight came about. And all the rest of my materials have come about when I've seen a need, pain management. I saw the need for families to have something in their hands. It's not enough for someone to sit down and explain pain management or signs of approaching death. What is really valuable is something that at three o'clock in the morning, that family member can open a booklet and go, oh yeah, this answers my question. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I really admire about your work is that we all are going to be facing this at some point, and we all have family members that we go through this with. And so you're writing something that's accessible and that also has that heartfelt connection to people and that you seem very genuine in your writing, but you make these very specific details that a lot of people might not know about. Like when I was reading The Final Act of Living, you're talking about things like eating habits, sleep, pain changes towards the end of life that I think not everyone is always expecting. So could you talk about like, what are some of those end of life changes that people might not always be aware of before they start this process or a family member starts the process? I don't even, and most people, you don't even need to know the medical diagnosis yeah. to know if someone has entered the dying process. You're going to look for three things, really simple their eating habits, their sleeping habits, and their social ability. There's only two ways to die. You either die gradual or fast. Fast is getting hit by a truck. Mm -hmm. Gradual death is disease. Gradual death is even old age. It just takes longer. But gradual death from disease has a process to it. If it didn't have a process, it would be fast death. And that process starts three to four months before death from disease occurs. And that's when you start looking at their eating habits. They're going to stop eating meat and then gradually fruits and vegetables. And then toward death, you're doing good if you can get water or Gatorade or ice cream down them. Sleeping, again, months before death, an afternoon nap. And then pretty soon it's a morning and an afternoon nap. And then one day they don't get out of bed. And social ability is the same thing. It starts three to four months before death. Person's not interested in their favorite football team or their favorite TV show. And then that circle starts to go inward in that it's, they're not being social ability with their friends. And then it's, well, don't have the grandkids come over. And then finally they go completely within and do their work interior. Those are kind of, the, there's a lot more, but those three are the key things that you're gonna look at. Yeah, and if people don't know that, they might be worried, right? Of like, oh, why isn't my loved one eating or why are they sleeping more? And so just having that information is so important. Well, it makes a huge difference because 
taking care of someone at end of life is different than taking care of someone who's going to get better. But most people don't know that. And yeah. so most people apply the quote unquote rules of how we get someone better. And that doesn't work for when someone has entered the dying process. And those three areas are the key to understanding what's happening, that nothing bad is happening here. Dad's doing what he's supposed to be doing. It's that reassurance that my material gives. Another thing I really liked when reading The Final Act of Living was you talked in some detail about DNRs and advanced directives. Can you explain for our audience maybe why it's important for an individual in hospice to consider a DNR and what quality of life considerations people should be making as they enter hospice? Actually, I'm going to take you back to you should really, at 18 years old, when you leave your family's protection, I put that in quotes, then you need to have an advanced directive. And going forward, we can change it as life changes. But if we don't put down on paper what we, how we want to be treated at the end of our life, then we will be literally treated until our very last breath. And if I get hit by a truck and I'm 40 years old, I want you to do everything to treat me and get me better. But if the doctors have said, I can't fix you, go home, put your fares in order. If I don't have an advanced directive saying what I want done when I can't speak for myself without it, then the doctors are going to do everything they can, including CPR, which is going to break my ribs. And if I can't be fixed, then without a DNR, our, I'm going to say breathing can continue. Notice I was very careful and I said breathing because there's a big difference between just breathing and living. And we want to be living the best we can until we're not. Something kind of along those lines is something that you had said about advanced directives is it's important to have this perspective shift of not thinking about them as how I want to die, but rather how I want to live until I am dead. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we don't think other people die. I'm not going to die until I do. But because of that mindset that we have, we kind of think if I talk about death and dying, then that means I will surely die. And so we're afraid to make those decisions because then magically it's all going to come true where we need to make the decisions, put it in writing, tell someone where you put it then. Don't just put it in your drawer and not share that with anyone. Because when you need those advanced directives, you will probably not be able to say what you want or don't want. 
And particularly if you have, the doctors have said, I can't fix you, then yeah. you want to have that conversation with your physician and say, here's what I want. Here's what I don't want. And then if you go on hospice, you're going to tell that hospice what you want, what you don't want, and put that on your refrigerator door, get a, a DNR and put it on the refrigerator. Yeah. So somewhere where it's easy to find. Yeah. And, and some, somewhere where people know where it is. I always think as a hospice nurse, obviously it seems like you would make a lot of connections to patients, but I think part of it is also what's it like with helping out the family members that are also caregivers and how do you handle family members of patients in hospice? Well, as much a part of end of life work is with the patient it is equally the same amount with the family. And sometimes it's more with the family than it is the patient. You know, if I get a referral and that patient's non-responsive and weeks from death, then I'm going to keep him comfortable. I'm going to look at pain and no pain, but I'm going to do intense teaching and support with the family because people don't die like they do in the movies. And yet most people don't know that. So they're gonna be waiting for Judy Dench to say something profound and then close her eyes and be dead. And when dad doesn't do that, then we think something pathological is happening with dad. So our job as support people is to teach that family and support them in that teaching on what dying really looks like. And that, you know, dad's doing a great job. Nothing pathological is happening here. This is how you die and he's doing it good. And then because all of us bring fear to the, be to the bedside, when we talk about death and dying, fear is the number one emotion that pops up. And so end of life workers jobs, job is to neutralize the fear that everyone carries around inside of them regarding end of life. And that's our work to support them. 90% of end of life work is educating people on what happens when you die, because we don't know. Yeah. And I think that education is so important, especially making people realize that things are going normally because it is scary and it is something that, you know, we worry a lot about when our loved one is dying. And so to have someone there telling you that this is how things are supposed to go, I think is probably a great comfort to a lot of people. Well, it is. And that's why hospice is so important. Now I'm going to give a plug for hospice and I'm going to say that hospice has a bad PR image. And that PR image is that hospice takes care of people who are dying. And so no one wants to bring hospice in until the person looks like they're dying. And that's one to three weeks before death. Hospice does its best work in the months before death so that they can support and guide the patient 
as well as not doing crisis intervention with the family, but teaching them how this is going to unfold. Hospice helps people live the best they can within the confines that their body and disease has put them in. So don't wait till it looks like dad's dying. Call hospice when you get the diagnosis that we can't fix dad and there's no more treatment that's going to work. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember just from my own life when when grandparents were dying and family was saying, well, if we put them in hospice, are they dying tomorrow? And that's not always the case. And actually putting them in earlier is a huge improvement to their quality of life. So yeah, thank you. I think that's really important to think about. I just had one more question, and then I was going to ask where we can find your work and things, because I do think it's really important that people hear about this. If it's okay, I just want to read one paragraph from the final act of living, because I just thought it was really beautiful. I learned to be grateful for all the blessings life has given me, for the air I breathe in so easily, for the warmth of feeling the sun on my skin without pain, for the food I eat with gusto and in abundance, for the feet and legs that carry me gracefully and freely on my daily walks. I am grateful for my wonderful life and the caring people in it. I appreciate life since I know how short and unpredictable this adventure can be. This life is for doing. The only opportunity for experiencing is when I am in my physical body. I can ruminate when I am dead. My mantra has become, if not now, when? And I guess I just wanted to finish off with asking, you know, how do you feel like your work in this field has changed you and and your perspective? Well, um, well, that's a big question. I It has certainly given me purpose. It's kind of what I think I'm on the planet for. If you'd have asked me that in 1981, when I started and got involved in hospice, I wouldn't have been able to say this, but now all these 50 some years later, I think I have touched a lot of lives as a result of the education that I've put forward and how I have put it forward in that my work is understandable. It's simple. And yet I have done it, taken a difficult topic and put a gentleness to it so that Fear can be neutralized. That's wonderful. So where can people find your DVDs, your books, all the great things that you're putting out there? I have a website, bkbooks.com, where all my materials and I write a weekly blog that if you go to the website, sign up for it. It's free. You just get it, an email, and you can click on it and read whatever I happen to be thinking about that particular week. I also have just recently developed working with a company called Home Care Pulse, which you can see on my website. I've put together a course on end of life, and it is like the rest of my work, short, simple, direct but gentle. So check us out at the website. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you talking with us, Barbara. I hope this is educational for people and I hope more people are able to read your books. I hope so too. (laughs) 
Thank you so much for listening. That's it for today's Redefining Aging podcast. For more information on BACOA events, including our World Alzheimer's Day event with Tipa Snow on Thursday, September 21st, you can visit www.bacoa.org. That's www.bacoa.org.